I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. As the world becomes a messier place and as the U.S. great power competition with China continues to ramp up, this battle will be fought on many fronts, though few, if any, on an actual battlefield. Instead, these superpowers' fight for supremacy focuses on different dimensions of power and influence, in particular, areas like business and technology, including the next generation of artificial intelligence applications. So who's winning? Where does China stand? And what should other countries and companies understand to compete and win? To find out, I welcomed back a previous and incredibly interesting guest, Anindya Ghost, the Heinz Real Chair Professor of Business at New York University's Leonard and Stern School of Business. Anindya is also the author of the important and engaging book, TAP, Unlocking the Mobile Economy, which has now been translated into five languages and was recently named one of the top 100 marketing books of all time. Ghost also was named to the prestigious 2019 highly cited researchers list from the Web of Science Group. Anindya's bottom line, while the U.S. may lead in AI research, China leads in AI implementation. They simply are doing more on commercialization and making AI an actionable part of everyday life. What's driving this advantage? I wondered, of course, if the difference comes down to the government thumb on the scale, that China's support for targeted industry simply gives their companies an unfair advantage. But the response I got, as you'll hear, was not so fast, Reback. From Gose's research, the difference is more cultural in terms of consumer uptake. As he told me, quote, their tech sector is clearly innovating faster, working harder, and is about two to three years ahead of their counterparts in the U.S. and about five to eight years ahead from the ones in Western Europe and Southeast Asia. There is much to learn from them, end quote. An additional note, we also explored new research in India has just published on the effect of voice AI on consumer purchase and search behavior. Given the growth of voice and technology, I promise you'll want to hear what he and his colleagues found. Before my conversation with India, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these working capital conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Anindya Ghost. Anindya, thanks for joining me. Uh, pleasure to get to talk with you again. Thanks for having me, Chris. Happy to be here. So about two years ago, you published this little book called Tap, Unlocking the Mobile Economy, which has now uh, been translated into multiple languages, Vietnamese is the next, and which Book Authority just named as one of the top 100 marketing books of all time. I, I just, you know, it's been a couple of years since you and I spoke. I just am so sorry that nothing much has happened in your life professionally since then. Um, you're just living this quiet, solitary life of an academic, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, no, thank you again uh, for having me. Um, it's been exciting. You know, the journey that TAP has taken since the last two years um, has been very exciting. I'm, you know, profoundly grateful and thankful to the universe for making it happen. Um, like you mentioned, it's been translated into, you know, five different languages and it's hit the bestseller list in a few different countries. Um, and it's, it's all been great, really. So, um, you know, it's. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you tap, I mean, you, 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 you hit something and you, you, you know, it, it, uh, 
apologies in advance, of course, for the pun, but you know, you, you tapped into um, <laughs> the, the real uh, concept and idea that many of us were realizing what was going on, but you, you really brought it all together around that, that connection among um, us, our phones, the, you know, the, the mobility, and then the economy. And it was, uh, you know, really one of the, the foremost books in terms of uh, um, explaining, not only explaining what was going on, um, but, but helping give some real business uh, ideas around it. So it's, it's no surprise that that has taken off. And it, to follow up, and, and I, I really, I don't want to make this the Let's Embarrass a Ninja podcast, <laughs> so I promise I'll move on in a second. But there, there's, there's another item I really have to raise with you, and then, then we get to your actual ideas on China and AI and the future of the world and that sort of thing. So, sure. so, so your bio, it includes all the accolades, you know, any academic would want. Now, I can live with these, you know, the, the, the appointments, the <laughs> lightning fast rise, the consulting, you. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the Awards, even even the one I I think that you are most proud of the the 2019 NYU Stern Distinguished Teaching Award, but but then down in the fine print about you I read, quote, he is an accomplished high altitude mountaineer and has climbed in five <laughs> continents. Now, come on, in India, please tell me you made that one up before my whole sense of self worth is totally depleted. <laughs> Well, that I was bitten by that bug when I was about 20 years old, uh, which is about two decades, you know, prior. Uh, you know, it was an interesting story. I basically went for my undergraduate engineering in a college that is almost the foothills of the Himalayas, and um, almost every other weekend, a bunch of us would just, you know, pack our bags and you know, start uh, hiking and trekking around the photos of the MLS and then in the, wow. during the four years we sort of covered you know a lot of those places and then I realized you know I really really love the outdoors and ended up taking a mountaineering course I thought that was my calling in life I would essentially <laughs> be you know guiding uh, you know uh, wealthy clients on these team building exercises and up on high mountains um, but uh, yeah that's how but, it all started and uh, I love it but instead technology called maybe that you know that, <laughs> that could always be your next career yeah if, if this you know if this uh, marketing business global uh, you know connectivity thing global economy thing doesn't work out for you uh, <laughs> maybe that where, where did you so and and again I want to get to your I, I want to get to to the ideas but did where did you did you grow up then in an urban environment? Was that was business school then your first um, engagement with the outdoors and and mountains like that, or did you grow up you know engaging in the outdoors? Yeah, no. So I had a very sort of a nomadic lifestyle. You know, when I was five, my family, my parents, we moved from India to East Africa. So I actually I grew up mm. in Tanzania, speaking Swahili, and then later on in Zambia. Um, and then I think my, my first sort of foray, official foray into outdoors was in Africa. Um, but then uh, it's only when I came back to India for my undergrad and my, my master's, that's when I started, you know, skirting the foothills of the MLS. And, and that's how the love for mountaineering really took off. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're going to have to do a whole other conversation. I think I'm going to need to sure. launch a, a, a nature outdoors podcast and you'll be my first guest on that one because I, I think, would love that. I yeah. think the rest of your life sounds uh, fascinating as well. So, so let's get, um, to your work and, and let's go first into, um, 
you know, the area, uh, China, um, AI, artificial intelligence and business. You, you spent time this summer in China, um, I know, and, and even since then, I think you've been, been back since. Um, mm-hmm. And I know you saw firsthand how China's next g- generation of tech titans are using drones and robots and facial recognition, vend bots, greet bots, and, and, and other forms of advanced AI-based technologies to, and, and in your words, push the frontiers in business and society. So first, give us the landscape. What did you see and what surprised or impressed you about what you saw? Sure. Um, so yeah, I you know go to China five or six times a year. Uh, various sort of engagements take me there. Um, so I think you know China is fascinating in many many ways. But one way in which they sort of really trigger my curiosity and, and sort of passion is what they are doing with AI and AI based applications. So my summary is basically something like this: that you know uh, we here in the U.S. we are essentially the leaders in AI research but China is the leader in AI implementation. Mm. In other words, you know, we produce a lot of the intellectual uh, you know, research, and then they are very, very good at commercializing um, some of those you know, uh, research into actual products and services. Um, so this year, I happened to go you know, uh, last in September, and then before that in July, and then before that in June. And you know, we all know about the, 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 the big three titans, right? Alibaba, Baidu, and Tencent. But what a lot of us uh, don't uh, know is that there's another generation of, you know, Chinese tech titans coming up. Companies like Meituan and Kuaishu and ByteDance and, you know, DJI. And, um, you know, if you look at the world of AI, we basically can think of, I know there are four verticals of AI. That's where the battle between the U.S. and China is brewing. So the four verticals are this consumer AI. These are companies like, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and their equivalents in China, like Tencent, Alibaba, uh, you know, Baidu, H1, etc. Then there's business AI. So AI being adopted by at the enterprise level by you know banks and insurance companies, financial services companies, and so on. The third vertical is what we call, you know, perception AI. These are essentially the use of, you know, sensors and IoT, Internet of Things, and facial recognition and drones. Um, and then you've got, you know, autonomous AI, essentially something like self-driving cars. So these are the four verticals of AI. And in each of these verticals, we have a race between the U.S. and China. And at least, you know, in two of these verticals, China is clearly ahead of the U.S. in AI implementation. Um, the first of which is, you know, consumer AI, and the second of which is the perception AI. Um, I think the third vertical, the business AI, we are ahead of them, uh, mostly because we have a lot of, you know, really high quality unstructured data. Um, in the fourth vertical, the autonomous AI, it's a neck and neck race right now brewing between, you know, the Googles and Teslas with self-driving cars and their own, you know, counterparts in China. So give me some examples. I assume when you talk about the research versus implementation dichotomy, mm-hmm. you're seeing it largely, I would think, on the consumer side maybe as well on the perception side, since you said those were really the two um, of the four verticals that, that China was leading on. Give me some examples, particularly in the in the consumer side and, and you know, and to the, the extent to which uh, mobile – is so uh-huh. fully integrated into the consumer life um, in China and, and really obviously in Asia uh, more widely? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in China, essentially, they've become, uh, I know, a cashless society. Um, anything and everything that is meaningful in life can be done on a mobile app. And in fact, you know, they have essentially built 
uh, a, an app like WeChat is a, is a super app. Essentially, you know, yep. instead of uh, us here having like you know, 20 different apps, they basically have one app. That app is a one-stop shop for everything in your life. Um, and so an example of, you know, uh, how they are um, advanced is just the world of payments, right? So, uh, you know, you can uh, see in China now even an uh, sort of a roadside, uh, you know, offline roadside grocer, someone just selling, you know, vegetables and fruits in, in a cart on the road. You know, they essentially take uh, mobile payments. Uh, they have their own WeChat app. And you know, if you have the WeChat app, you can just transfer money and buy vegetables and fruits on the road. Um, if you see a homeless person, which is very, very rare in China, but in the rare occasion that you see a homeless person who might be, you know, asking for some help, uh, you know, they will have a placard with them which says, you know, WeChat pay, please, <laughs> or mm. Ali pay, please. Like mm. they don't even take cash. Um, so, you know, what mobile payments has done is removed lots of frictions from our daily lives. You know, the convenience of just paying through an app for pretty much anything and everything uh, makes uh, things very, very, you know, smooth and frictionless and, and easy. Um, so I think that's, you know, a prime example. And, and this is heavily backed by the government regulations in the sense that, you know, uh, many of us here would say that, well, you know, China is essentially getting, you know, unlimited government support and protectionism and all that. But yeah. while there is some truth to that, but I think, you know, the real benefit of government support comes in the form of something called a techno utilitarian policy. Okay, So what that basically means is that the government will back entrepreneurs all the way to do, you know, massive innovation in like really expedited amount of time until and unless they see any evidence that that innovation is actually hurting any segment of society. So I'll give you two contrasting examples. You know, on the positive side, right, when mobile payments were first introduced by Alipay and WeChat more than a decade back, uh, the government essentially told these guys, the CEOs, that, look, you have our full unlimited support. Go ahead. Uh, let's see how this all unravels. And as this, as what we saw is that you know, about 700 million people in the villages and tier four and tier five cities of China could essentially pay and buy and sell anything and everything through mobile payments. It was a very positive social welfare enhancing mechanism. So the government said, go ahead, do it. In contrast, you know, uh, think about Bitcoin trading. Okay? What, when Bitcoin trading was first legitimized in China uh, seven or five or six years back, what they started saying is that, you know, um, your your average 80-year-old, you know, uh, grandparent is putting his or her entire life savings in trying to figure out how do I make more money on Bitcoin trading. And given the volatility of this mechanism, many, many, you know, people uh, ended up uh, kind of, you know, uh, wasting all of their life savings in something that really didn't take off. Mm. That's when the government stepped in and said, look, we're not going to allow this. So that's what I mean by a techno utilitarian policy that, you know, they, they allow the technologies to flourish. They allow innovator innovation to happen and entrepreneurs to you know thrive until they see a clear negative outcome. Then they will step in and stop it. And are you able is one able to make a value statement about that? I mean, when I hear you and I think about what you're describing, um, I also start to wonder about uh, playing fields and. Um, you know, when you when you you know raise the the split between the amount of research here versus mm -hmm. the implementation that you see there, is that a cultural thing? Is it because mm -hmm. government takes the role in terms of advancing business 
in China that you just described and that perhaps does not get taken here? It, it, should right. we, from a U.S. business point of view, be okay with that because that's the difference between the cultures and the roles of government and, and that's how we do? H- how do you kind of um, reconcile all those kind of competing tensions that I'm, I'm sensing from listening to you? Sure. I think, you know, there's a, there's a few different reasons. Uh, you know, first and foremost, it's about uh, the speed of decision-making and the speed of execution. So, you know, I have uh, worked with, you know, con- companies in, in several dozen countries around the world, and nowhere have I seen, um, you know, companies that are faster in taking decisions and executing them than in China. They're just an order of magnitude faster. Uh, now, you know, uh, I'm not necessarily saying it's better. I'm just saying that they are faster. So they will decide today, they will execute tomorrow, and then you will see the result, you know, two days from now. That's just how they roll. Is that because they have a bigger cushion behind them? I mean, do they have do they have government support or some sort of safety, you know, capitalistic safety, quasi-capitalistic safety net underneath them that American businesses don't have? No, I would say it's more of the following, you know, mantra. So Chinese entrepreneurs in general follow the following mantra, fail fast, fail early and fail often. Okay? Mm. They do not see any stigma in failing. They are very happy to see failures. They learn from the failures and they just, you know, uh, get punched, knocked down and then move up and, and back again. So <laughs> it's that you, you could call that cultural. Maybe I think that culture exists in other countries, too. But I think what what I've generally seen is. Uh, you know, this this mantra of failing fast, failing early and failing often makes them amenable to take lots of risks okay, on the entrepreneur side. And the same goes for consumers. So on an average consumer in China just seems to be far more willing to embrace a new product or a new service and then just play it by the ear and just see how it all unfolds. Okay? And if three months down the line, they realize, look, OK, it's not turning out the way I thought, they'll just drop it and move on to the next thing. So both on the entrepreneur innovation side, on the consumer side, you see the cycle where things move very fast. Um, and, you know, they both have to uh, work that way for the ecosystem to survive or thrive. Otherwise, if consumers are slow to adopt, then no amount of, you know, fast innovation will actually be helpful, right? So it's a two-sided market. So both parties have to be amenable to, you know, really quick decision-making and changes in, in behavior and all that. Hmm. I'm wondering as well, and I want to ask you, need to ask you about some of the negative aspects and, and certainly the privacy concerns around sure. AI, and we'll get to that in a moment. I'm curious what you're seeing as well as we're talking uh, right now in kind of call it mid, uh, mid-October. Um, from an economic and a trade point of view, um, I'm interested in your take on, on what effect is the ongoing China-U.S. dispute having? I mean, a, a lot has happened mm-hmm. even since you were there, I, I, you know, a, a month ago, a month and a half ago. I mean, the tariff concerns continue. The, you know, IP um, concerns continue. There's increased rhetoric. You know, there's concerns about Huawei, um, you know, the and, and other tech companies. And as we're speaking right now um, – um, the NBA China dispute is very much in the news. We'll see where where that goes. How do you see? Do you have any insights um, on how you see China and U.S. businesses reacting to these conflicts? I mean, they're, they're, they're and, and these tensions. Is this a 
public policy political challenge. Um, it's seeming, and, and as we're speaking again, this the NBA thing is is you know just kind of bubbling up. It seems to be infiltrating and becoming a business concern as well. Are, are you seeing that? Uh, I think you know the general sort of perception I've gathered from this the visits this year is that you know people are sort of you know staying on the sidelines and playing it by the ear, uh, but at the same time being cautious. So in other words, there's this perception that uh, you know we have here in the U.S. we have an election coming up next year. And so the, the general thinking is that a lot of what you're seeing from the administration at this point seems to be, you know, influenced by potential outcomes in the elections next year. And things will be mm-hmm. very different, uh, you know, after 2020. So there is that, you know, wait and watch sort of attitude. Um, but at the same time, uh, there has been a perceptible impact in the economy back in China. Um, at least that's what, you know, my friends who are uh, executives in the corporate world or entrepreneurs seem to be suggesting there has been a, a slowdown, uh, but they're not they're not you know uh, petrified. They're, they're not overtly worried yet uh, because they see this as a short term hiccup because things might change after the elections over here. Okay? So that's the way they're looking at it. But at the same time, they're also taking steps. Right? For example, China has already started to reroute the supply chains that it often relies on away from the U.S. into other parts of the world. Right? Yep. So some of the experts had suggested this would take them two years, but now we are seeing they have been able to accomplish this in six months or less. Right. So we're hmm. seeing, you know, who's benefiting from this war? Uh, actually, it's countries like Vietnam or Indonesia or Philippines or even like parts of India. Uh, because the supply chains are being rerouted through those countries. Uh, you know, Germany is benefiting from this. Uh, yeah. you know, Brazil from a farming point. point of view, I believe. Yes, um, farming. Also, Australia and New Zealand. All the you know, farm and dairy products are mm-hmm. now being imported from there in China. So I think, you know, you're seeing um, a lot of that reaction as well. But I don't at least perceive, uh, you know, them being uh, overtly worried at least at least yet. And returning to the AI question and then the privacy question, obviously any discussion of China and this type of AI and, and you, you mentioned the perception AI and, mm-hmm. and you know, and you know, the, the various different aspects of, of, uh, artificial intelligence, but, but, you know, especially areas like drones and robots and facial recognition, any of that conversation, particularly given what's happening in Hong Kong immediately raises intense privacy concerns. Mm-hmm. We know how the Chinese government uses them. How should we balance the business opportunities with the very real and often dire privacy concerns? Yeah, so, you know, in the work that I have done, sort of the research and the consulting work that I've done in privacy, you know, my philosophy and my sort of recommendation to companies has been, you know, be a butler and not a stalker. And I talk about this a lot in my book. So mm-hmm. a butler is, you know, both a butler and a stalker essentially know a lot about the consumer, but one is cool and, you know, the other is creepy, right? <laughs> so um, so I, my, you know, what I've generally seen in 15, 16 years of work with companies across, you know, five continents is that, you know, most corporations are very much cognizant of the importance and the responsibilities in protecting data, and they actually do it. It's just that we live in this very adversarial world where, you know, the bad guys have to get it right once. Or we have to get it right every single time, mm. you know, we as in the, I mean, the companies and the corporations. So it's in some ways, you know, yes, uh, the average consumer would blame corporations for, 
you know, anything and everything, but they often don't realize that, you know, we, they are trying their level best to protect our data, and they are, in fact, but every once in a while, the bad guys get through, right? So I think that's something I talk about a lot in my recent work as well. We've started to use, you know, uh, newer AI-based algorithms to protect people's privacy. Some of the location-based work, advertising work that I've been doing actually is able to obfuscate and mask people's personal information and yet give advertisers, you know, higher returns. Um, and this is work, you know, over the last two, three, two, three months with uh, colleagues at Carnegie Mellon, you know, Bebe Lee and so on. So I think, you know, there there is both, both within academia and the corporate world, there is realization that this is an important topic. We have to deal with it. We have to work to, you know, uh, protect people's privacy. But at the same time, the people also have to re- understand that, you know, um, big corporations are not necessarily out to get them. Just, you know, as you might see this uh, a different theory being proposed in, in the media, but that's not always true. I think the other big difference between the U.S. and China on this front is my, again, you know, 15 years of work seems to suggest, see, here in the U.S., most of us have a high level of distrust against the government and against big corporations. Mm -hmm. Okay, so any conversation about privacy almost always goes to the extreme. Mm. And this might be surprising, but the average consumer in China actually does not have the level of distrust about their government as much as we do about our government. So they're far more willing to, in fact, share their data with companies or the government, um, despite, you know, what we typically get to uh, um, sort of perceive that uh, there is no privacy in China. It's a, it's a much more nuanced concept, you know. If you, um, it's, uh, yes, may, there may be sort of, you know, potentially less uh, protection of privacy in China, but at the same time, people are far more trust, trustful of corporations and government over there than back over here. So it's a very interesting yin yang where you know um, you have to really sort of go through, work through the nuances to understand this dichotomy between um, you know how we in the U.S. or in America react to data and privacy based on our preconceived notions about what the government or companies can do versus how things are over there. Okay. I, I, I understood, and and there could be a, obviously an entire conversation on uh, you know on just that that yeah. one aspect, um, Surely. and and yeah. you know on on one's perceptions and realities of uh, government use of data in in you know over there, uh, and uh, you know there are people you know concerned uh, here as well, although um, obviously very big differences in terms of. Uh, uh, you know things that are going on in in, in terms of uh, advancing, uh, you know, human rights and etc. How go on a pure AI integration into business in the four verticals that you talked about? Mm-hmm. How are you advising to close out this part of the conversation? How how would you advise U.S. businesses? Um, you know, if how would you? suggest that they start to close that gap between research and implementation? Should they be thinking about expanding into the other verticals? Should, uh, you know, do you see it continuing within the U.S. um, deeply within the business vertical because that's where the investment is and perhaps the consumer uptake isn't uh, and and the way that mobile uh, is is fully a part of life um, in Asia hasn't, you know, isn't quite there 
uh, over here yet. Um, how, how do you advise U.S. businesses around uh, uptake of AI? Yeah, I think, you know, if I'm a corporation here in the U.S., a company, large corporation company, and I have to essentially deal with two impediments. One is getting my consumers, uh, you know, to be less sort of apprehensive or less concerned about what I can do with data and AI. And the other is a, a really important conversation with regulators here again. So, you know, companies here in the U.S. are essentially, um, you know, somewhat sort of handicapped by an immediate knee-jerk reaction from many policymakers and regulators that, you know, uh, most things in AI or most things involving data are detrimental to social welfare. And I don't think that's true at all. I think quite in in, in contrast is the opposite, you know. Um, Like to me, AI is like, the world of AI is like how, you know, biology was 200 years back and when Biology was, you know, like sort of, you know, quote unquote, invented. A lot of the cynical skeptics, skeptics would say, oh, you know what? Com- countries are going to use uh, this for making biological weapons and, and the world is doomed and we're all going to die and et cetera, et cetera. And that's not how it all unfolded. Right. Um, yes. You know, some countries have biological weapons, but that's a tiny, tiny proportion of all the positive upside that has come out of biology. Right. So to me, AI is very much like that. There's a lot more potential upside and there are a lot of people who actually are working towards making it happen that way. I think it's important to be cognizant of the downside, but let's not have, you know, that sort of apprehension drown the possibilities uh, in using AI for innovation and making people's lives better. I think sometimes or more often the rhetoric has gone so far down to the right that Mm. we have to bring it to the middle and say, look, guys, you know, like any new technology, it can be used for helping people or it can be abused while we should recognize the pitfalls you know let's not just steamroll over any potential upside i think you know companies are struggling with that because a lot of the discussion is just you know so far to the extreme that they don't know how to proceed from there okay and i think look if i'm also um, you know trying to figure a solution to this i would also ask you know the average consumer to sort of you know be more open to the positives and to the upsides of using AI for enhancing, you know, people's lives. Uh, there is like ample evidence across the world that, you know, AI, like robotics, for example, uh, people uh, in Japan, you know, robotics has been used in healthcare now. Um, and, and there are many other examples where, you know, the elderly are benefiting from the have, from having robots around, uh, you know, meaningful parts of their daily lives. Yep. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot more upside to this. So, my sort of you know recommendation to the companies would be okay. Look, um, first of all, you have to you know get consumers on your side, and that's probably you know an easier conversation than maybe getting the regulators on your side. So, uh, but they have to you know work both work both the sides. Uh, to make this happen. It's often a question, to to your point, it's often a question of customer centricity, isn't it? And focusing on um, maximizing and protecting the experience for customers while minimizing or even eradicating, if possible, the possibilities for misuse or 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 unfair use and if you know yeah, in theory yeah. from a business philosophy point of view i would assume that that means um acting in a customer centric way and it's when businesses go off that path that um uh, bad things start to happen yeah and i think you know one important part of this conversation is this world that i've also discussed in my research and the book in the past that 
we are uh, about to head into a space where consumers will get rewarded by companies for sharing their data. And this mm-hmm. has to be a very transparent, a very sort of a clear, you know, frictionless process. And, and the faster we move towards a world where, uh, you know, me as a consumer giving or sharing my data with the company leads to tangible benefits, uh, you know, the faster we will actually be able to embrace all the possibilities in innovation with AI and data. Okay, So that is something we see that back in the Far East where people are actually willing to embrace in that relationship and embrace uh, that uh, trustworthiness. And I think we, uh, you know, we have some ways to go towards that direction, but I think that is the right direction to go. So t- tell me as well about a- another aspect that I know you are working on, and, and this maybe provides a- an excellent segue to that, and-, and that is the opportunity to realize business value from AI analytics and data science um, implementations. Uh, one area where uh-huh. you focus, I know, is combining machine learning and econometrics. M- make this tangible for me. I know one, one of your recent projects was with Alibaba and using their AI-based voice shopping devices, kind of like an Alexa. Um, I- explain to me that intersection between machine learning, e- econometrics, um, data science, and I guess ultimately business and uh, consumer value. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So this is, you know, think about voice control smart devices, you know, which are becoming more popular in the U.S., for example. We have households now own about 118 million devices, such as you know, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Apple mm-hmm. HomePod. You know, in China, millions of consumers have adopted like Tmall, Genie, Baidu and Xiaomi's Xiaowise and so on. So as these devices take off, you know, voice activated shopping or, or like placing orders by talking to AI devices is showing signs of, you know, rapid growth. And so uh, my colleagues and I, uh, you know, one of them is a PhD student at NYU, Chen Shuo-san. Another co-author is a professor at NYU, Xiao Liu, and with a third professor at HKUST, Jun Shi. The four of us started working with a really fascinating data set from Alibaba where we combined, you know, uh, machine learning based, AI uh, based, uh, you know, analytics with like field experiments, uh, massive field experiments Mm. involving, you know, like uh, hundreds or even thousands of consumers. And the idea is basically like, look, um, can we find, uh, can we analyze what happens to consumers shopping and search behavior after they've adopted these voice activated shopping devices, okay? Um, you know, voice activated shopping can affect a consumer's journey from consideration all the way to final transaction. Yep. So we are basically asking a, a very simple question that, you know, how would the use of voice activated shopping change a consumer's purchase behavior, both in terms of quantity of products and also the actual spending amount? And, um, you know, this was done um, over the last few months. Uh, you know, uh, we find some pretty interesting results. Uh, we, On an average, it turns out consumers are searching for five more categories. And, um, and they're actually searching for 14 more products within the same category. So clearly, you know, voice-based shopping is increasing their search depth and breadth. In addition, we also find, you know, very unequivocal evidence on the impact on uh, monetary, uh, you know, shopping behavior. So, you know, people are, in fact, spending more money per shopping session when they're in using voice-based devices. And on an average, it's about $80. Mm. 
Wow. And they're in fact, um, yeah, and in fact, they're buying more products as well while they're shopping using voice based uh, devices. So it definitely is having a very clear cut impact. Um, and it's not necessarily the case that, you know, voice based shopping is cannibalizing like smartphone shopping or desktop shopping or even offline shopping. Hmm. In most cases, we find that in fact, it's, you know, expanding the market. So People are still spending what they were spending before, you know, on, on mobile commerce or desktop or offline commerce. But in addition to all of that, they're, still, uh, they're spending more money using these voice-based devices. So, um, so th- that's, uh, th- this is why my monthly credit card bill continues to go up? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, it is almost certainly correlated. Uh, if you're <laughs> seeing that, you know, if you have an Alexa-like device at home, you're likely to end up, you know, buying more products. You're likely to end up searching for more products and also spending more money every time you shop. And so, what's the why? Is it is it easier when via voice? Do we not, you know, do we not kind of restrict ourselves sufficiently, or what's the why? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think the convenience of you know voice-based shopping is a single most important factor i mean you know, it's, it's a, it's a hand-free uh, device you know uh, many people especially the elderly they still struggle with you know smartphone shopping or mm. even desktop with with voice it's like and you know the the, the more uh, sort of on an average there's a correlation between income disposable income and sort of age right so the older you are the higher disposable income you typically have and so now you have this device where you just tell Alexa, find me the cheapest, you know, uh, batteries for my remote, uh, TV remote, right? Like instead of having to s- search for that on your phone or a desktop, it's a lot more convenient to just talk to a device and let it do all the work for you. So we find that convenience is really sort of the biggest driver of wow. this change. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you can... Uh, you can only imagine as as that uh, as that continues to grow and uh, you know the voice recognition increases and the um, you know the ability to fulfill on the uh, on the other side. Um, are, are you seeing mm-hmm. it more? Um, are you seeing uptake in the U.S.? How, how does it correlate with uptake um, on this capability in Asia? Uh, so I haven't, you know, analyzed the U.S. data like on a more formal basis, but I've looked at some data anecdotally. There are similar trends, you know, like we also here in the U.S., we are finding that there is a, a like smart home products tend to be one of the most dominant categories that people buy using voice devices. Yes. So like people are buying, you know, voice control light lighting products uh, or, you know, voice control curtains and uh, so we definitely see that. The other thing that we see both here in the U.S. and in China is that voice-based shopping is making it easier for people to switch across brands. And so in some strange way, like, you know, the whole lo- brand loyalty thing might be taking somewhat of a hit hmm. because, uh, you know, people um, and again, I think in China, we definitely see that in the U.S. it's early days. But the anecdotal early evidence seems to suggest that you know, the impact of voice devices on brand loyalty may be actually somewhat negative as opposed to, you know, what we originally hypothesized. I could see that because when you gave the example a moment ago about the batteries, you didn't say, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Alexa or exactly. device, you know, give me the, the right. Duracell batteries that fit. Exactly. Whereas mm-hmm. if I go into a store to buy batteries, I am pretty, you know, aware of what brand I'm buying. But you're right. I would just say to Alexa, Alexa, get me new batteries for my remote. 
And yeah, because you know, when you're talking to human being, you probably don't wouldn't feel that shy about saying, "Find me the cheapest pair of jeans," yeah, yeah. as opposed to when you want you walk into a store and you're talking to a customer service human being. Mm. You know, you might be like, you maybe don't want to give the impression that you're really cheap, right? So you don't want to say, "Find me the cheapest pair of jeans," right? Right. Right. And I, I think the fact that we can sort of you know interact with a device which is almost human-like but is not human. And it takes away that stigma yeah. of trying to be, you know, um, uh, sort of terse and uh, sort of efficient with money. And I think something maybe that's also a factor in why brand loyalty might be taking a hit. All, all the good parts of, of being human, but without the judgment attached to it. That's right. <laughs> well, that's why, you know, the, when the Japanese were asked that, hey, do you want more immigrants or do you want robots? They said robots because immigrants can still judge us, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah that, I, guess, I guess that makes sense. Um, and then to, to close out, and I could talk to you about these, uh, these topics forever. Um, I, I referenced sure. this earlier, um, and amid the joking, I, I was serious on this point. I am confident that among your honors and accomplishments – you may be most proud of your 2019 NYU Stern Distinguished Teaching Award. And I, I happen to know earning those teaching awards, it's it's really hard and it means that you have really, really connected with, most importantly, your students. Um, they, they, you know, those those awards are, are really special, I, I happen to know. Um, could you give us a sense of two things? One, we all hear lots of things about the millennial and now the, the Gen Z generations. You engage with mm-hmm. them every day at NYU and, and at other universities and in your studies. How would you characterize um, those generations and in particular the Gen Z generation? Um, what should we know? I think, you know, well, first of all, you're right. I mean, you know, I'm very, very proud about the, the teaching award. You know, it's a huge source of gratification to be recognized by you know several different constituencies you know i teach not just the undergrads i've taught full-time mbas part-time mbas exec mbas many other specialized degree programs so it was a really uh, very very gratifying feeling uh, to your question about you know how gen z or millennials are different i think you know uh, i've seen them being number one you know far more comfortable with technology than uh, maybe the previous generation uh, you know, I often refer to them as the I generation because, you know, by the time they were 12, they all had an iPhone or an equivalent smartphone. So uh, the world of technology is, is something that they embrace and they live and breathe every single day. Um, I think more on a cultural level, I find them far more informed. And maybe, again, you know, the fact that they have easy access to the Internet and social media enables that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, information dissemination. And third, I find them far more willing to be active. You know, they have very strong opinions on some key issues related to humanity, whether it's climate change or environment or healthcare or education or income inequality. And they, in fact, are very much willing to participate in, you know, embracing their activist mindset, very willing to participate in conversations uh, that involve policy changes or regulations and so on. Um, so I think, you know, that is something that I see, even though I don't, it's not a topic I teach in class, but it comes across in conversations every now and then. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think those are all, you know, very good, positive things to, to see. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, giving us some insights there. Maybe that'll be our, our 
subsequent subsequent podcast. We'll have one on the outdoors on mountaineering, and then we'll do one on sure. uh, the, the benefits and psychology of uh, of Gen Z and, and the millennials. Aninja, thank you, thank you for your time, and thank you for sharing your always always fascinating work. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, and look forward to the next next one with you. <laughs> me too.